Welcome to the Finding Refuge podcast. My name is Michelle Cassandra Johnson, and I am so glad you're here. This podcast emerged from work based in the exploration of collective grief and liberation. It exists to remind us about all the ways we can find refuge during unsettling and uncertain times. I'm beyond excited to bring you today's episode. I interviewed my friend, teacher, and beloved Tema Oaken. Many of you have heard me speak about Tema when I have shared about my work with Dismantling Racism Works. And um, many of you have referenced Tema and the article Tema wrote with Kenneth Jones focused on white supremacy culture and how white supremacy shows up in organizations. I'll tell you a little bit more about Tema now. Tema Oaken has spent over 30 years working with and for organizations, schools, and community-based institutions as a trainer, facilitator, and coach focused on issues of racial justice and equity. Dr. Oaken currently co-leads the Teaching for Equity Fellows program at Duke University, which works with faculty seeking to develop stronger skills, both teaching about race and racism, and across lines of race, class, and gender. She was a member of the Educational Leadership Faculty at National Lewis University in Chicago and has taught undergraduate, master's, and doctoral-level students in educational leadership and education. She's the author of the award-winning The Emperor Has No Clothes, teaching about race and racism to people who don't want to know, and the widely used article White Supremacy Culture. Timmet is a participant in the Living School for Action and Contemplation and a member of the Bumisfara Sangha under the leadership of Lama Rod Owens. She is an artist, a poet, and a writer. She lives in Durham, North Carolina, where she is fortunate to reside among beloved community. Her current project is deepening her ability to love her neighbor as herself. She is finding the instruction easy and the follow-through challenging, given how we live in a culture that is afraid to help us do either or both. I hope you enjoy this episode and conversation with Tema Oken. Hi, Tema. Hi. It's good to see you. Good to see you too, always. I know. Thank you for saying yes to being on the podcast and just making space and time for this. Well, thank you for asking. You pretty much know I'll do anything you ask. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's good. I I just feel so honored to be here with you. I've, we've known each other for a long time now, and you're my friend and teacher and mentor and colleague. And I, I just feel honored really isn't the word, whatever's bigger than that to be here with, with you and to um, make space for you to share your, your wisdom and medicine with, with people who are listening. Well, thank you. I I would use the very same descriptors for you. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. And I would love for you to share some about who you are, what you do in the world, where you are. That sort of thing. Okay, happy to do that. And um, I think I'm going to start by by calling Kenneth's name, which you, you I know you know I would do, which is how we met. So 20 years ago, 25 years ago, I was working with a, a beloved mentor named Kenneth Jones. We were doing anti-racism workshops under the name of Change Work in North Carolina. And you came to one of the workshops. And it was, I have this memory of it being sometime around September 11th. 
and you had to step in. Are you remembering this? You had to step in. I do remember. This workshop <laughs> on the cusp. That's what I remember. And so I've been doing this work for a very long time, for over 30 years now. And I've always been based in North Carolina. It's where I grew up. My parents moved here from the Northeast when my father got a job as a professor at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill right after I was born. And so I've always, I've always lived in North Carolina. And I ended up doing this work because I was lucky enough to be among colleagues who were doing community organizing across the Southeast. And the groups that were coming, that we were working with were coming to us saying, we're getting really broken apart by racism, by sexism, by homophobia. Can you help us? And so we didn't really know how to help them. And we sort of made a project out of our ignorance and created a program called Barriers and Bridges, which we did for about six years, I think. And in that process, I met Kenneth. And then Kenneth and I started working together. And in that process, we met you and brought you on. You started to come on as part of change work, right? Mm-hmm. And then Kenneth died very prematurely in 2004. And those of us who'd been doing the anti-racism work with him formed Dismantling Racism Works. I, I think of myself as an educator, teacher, writer, artist, sort of in those categories. And that the thread has been learning about growing, stumbling, learning how to be anti-racist myself and how to support other people to do that with always in collectives of really uh, brilliant and committed and thoughtful people. And it's been a great gift to be able to, to do that. I think that's what I would say about my path. Yeah. There is a much longer story, but that's the, the <laughs> essence of the, yeah. the path. I, since we've known each other for a, a, a long time, I feel like I've witnessed many things, but I've witnessed times when I think you felt great despair. And I, I certainly feel that now and have felt it um, and my emotions felt like a roller coaster at different times and just despair in response to what's going on in the world. I think despair in response to the movement and that we're still here trying to dismantle racism. And I just wonder if you could talk some about your relationship with despair, or if that's not the word you would use grief or depression. I don't, I don't know what word you would use. That's just the word I used. Right. Despair is a good word, or hopelessness, maybe. I, I remember, so it's going to bring up a story, when Kenneth was still alive, I, we, had, we were doing a workshop somewhere in rural North Carolina. I'm sure you've heard the story before. And we were sitting out on the patio at the end of the day. It was dusk. I have this very strong memory. And I turned to Kenneth and I said, you know what? I want to start something called Tough Love Consulting. And I want to go, I want to charge half a million dollars. Maybe it was $200,000 then, I don't know. A lot of money. And go in and take people by the shoulders and shake them and go, get your shit together and then leave because that's how effective I think we are. And he just looked at me and he said, okay, you're burning out. You need to step back. And that's the point at at which I started doing teaching in college classrooms. So I took sort of what we had been learning about how to teach about race and racism into college classrooms. And so that was a great gift. So one of the ways I think I handle it is to you know, with Kenneth's help and then with other friends' help, as they as I start to feel it rising in me and people around me start to go, yes, you are, you are in that place, is to really consider, okay, what does it make sense to do given that this is how I feel? So I, I do know it doesn't work to pretend I'm not feeling it. So that's one. And the other I I would say, which is much more recent, 
as a result of a huge life transition that I've been going through the last two years is that I feel like one of the things that I've learned that I didn't really know before, or if I knew it, I didn't know it as clearly as I know it now, is that racism and white supremacy are really devious. They're very adaptable. They're very entrenched. And I think that, that the result of what that means is that all of us, because we're swimming in this water of white supremacy and racism so much that we get conditioned by it. And it's been very helpful for me to understand that what I'm witnessing is our conditioning. It's not who we really are. And so I, I don't know why, but I find that very helpful. I find it helpful for myself to understand that when my racist conditioning comes up, I'm not as attached to it as I was once. I mean, I, I want to be a good person. I want to be I want to act right in the world as a white person in a racist context. And when I see my conditioning show up, I'm able to respond to it with a lot more compassion than I used to in the past. And I don't mistake it for who I really am. And so one of the things that I I find refuge in is reminding myself that when people are showing up in ways, and I know it's institutional and cultural, so I'm not reducing it to personal racism, but when when racist conditioning shows up or when we act either individually or collectively out of it, I, I allow myself to understand that at least in the communities where I'm working, so I'm not, you know, I'm not talking about Trump, I'm not talking about the alt-right, I'm not talking about people who are using it as a deliberate strategy, but in the circles that I'm working in, when it shows up, that it, it's, just, it's, it's just some very deep conditioning. And, and I also have new appreciation for, for the strength of that conditioning when people haven't worked with it before. And how it it gets we get really confused that it, our conditioning is who we are. So that that's one way. And then the I think the third the third way that I take refuge is that I do have a strong meditation practice now, and I do sit with myself deliberately every day, and I do seek the silence, and I do seek what the silence has to say. And so there's a way in which I. Um, allow myself to feel held by something that's much greater than me. And I find that essential. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. How you're finding refuge and how you respond to despair and hopelessness. And I, I think what you said about conditioning and being able to witness people and witness their conditioning as separate from who they are is really powerful. And that practice has saved me in so many training spaces like there was a moment when I thought, oh, this man is acting out of his, his conditioning, but I see his humanity. Okay. Like, and it just saved me. It was a pivotal moment for sure. And so I appreciate that. And and you mentioned meditation and and cultivating a meditation practice and being with the silence and listening. And And I wonder if there are any, not answers, maybe questions coming through in the silence in regards to what's happening in our in this moment, in our world, in our culture? And maybe, I don't know if if you're receiving questions, but yeah, I'm curious. I love this idea of receiving them. I'm going to think about that. I will say that there are questions that are emerging. And the question I'm sitting with the most right now is that in the work that I do now, I see such an incredible tension between what white people need and what BIPOC or people of color need, black and people of color need. It's just very different. And and I would simplify it by saying white people need time and compassion and uh, a way to really come to grips with 
the stake that we have in racial justice directly and the way in which we are being harmed by our conditioning. And because it's so entrenched and so subtle often or hidden, maybe it's not subtle, it can be hidden or it can seem like it's just normal, that that work takes time. And it's beyond time for this shit to be over. And for, you know, the, the racism and the way that white supremacy and racism are impacting people of color so much differently and so much more directly and so much more violently. So that's the question I'm saying, like, how do we as a community of people committed to justice hold that tension? And I don't have an answer for it. So it's a very living question for me. It makes me, reminds me of urgency and mindfulness, like urgent concerns. There have been, it's, it's beyond time. As you said, people are late and we have to be really intentional about how we move forward or we're just going to replicate the same patterns, which is as evidenced by what is, what is happening now and what has happened in the past. Yeah. And I would say another question, a sort of secondary question to that is that I feel like because white supremacy is so devious the way it shows up in movement spaces or in spaces where people are trying to actually do something about racial inequity or racial violence is that we, is that, yeah, it's just that this, this, again, it's the same tension where white people, so many of us are still learning. So many of us are at the very beginning of our journey. Those of us who've been on this journey for a long time are still learning. And that kind of learning to me requires some level of, compassion and ability to hold people and ability to welcome people into their not knowing. And again, I, I can, and I have witnessed and, and I know from my relationships with people like you and other people of color that I work with and I'm friends with that sometimes, you know, that this is not a time for patience. So, you know, again, so they're related, but just, just how do we, how do we hold each other? when what we need from each other is so very different. And we're being harmed in such different ways. And right. you mentioned that. Right, yeah. right, right. And there is a, there's a desire to shame and blame people who should be shamed. I mean, because what we're doing is shameful and we're not taking responsibility. And shaming and blaming people isn't really a you know, long-term strategy. So it's just sort of sitting in the muck of all that are things that I'm sitting with and trying to figure out. I don't even know if I'm trying to figure out. I feel like more like I'm witnessing them and yeah. seeing what, if anything emerges that is helpful in that mm-hmm. situation. Yeah. You mentioned relationships with folks of color that are your friends and or folks of color that you work with. And something that I've noticed in the last, I don't know, maybe three years is that I trained up to train with a white co-trainer because I trained up with Dismantling Racism Work, Change Works and then Dismantling Racism Works. And I think through that, realize the different work we have to do. I mean, just because we need different things and we're having a different experience of of culture and of white supremacy and racism. And I think some people, folks of color, really believe that white people don't have a place in this anti-racism work, which is not something I believe, although I, I understand that. I mean, we're not a monolith. We're having different experiences. So I understand that. And I just wondered if you would share some about the lessons you've learned or the gifts you've received from your relationships with folks of color. And and I'm asking this because of the different ideas about how we do this work, but also because of what you just named around what we need and how we show up 
in relationship for the work or in friendship. So I just wonder if you'd share some about lessons or gifts as you've been, worked across difference and been in relationship across difference. So I'm going to tell another story. And I, <laughs> I love I'm it. Sure I'm sure you've heard all my stories. So I'm sorry <laughs> that you're having to listen to them again. So the first, the story happened a long time ago when Bar- Berries and Bridges, I don't even, I think it just started. So I was at the very beginning of my work and I didn't really understand much at all. And I was co-facilitating with my colleague, James Williams, who's an African-American man. We were co-facilitating a meeting, some kind of drug prevention meeting at the city level. And the room was half black, half white. There might've been some Latinx people there. I'm not sure uh, because I don't, all I remember is this incident really. And there was a very strong, influential, smart African-American woman who was a leader in one of one of the housing associations, one of the housing, you know, low-income housing developments in Durham. And I said something foolish and she went at, she came at, you know, she came after me. I don't know, she can't, she protested what I had said very clearly. I remember her voice being loud, although I don't know if it was, it was just, it was resonating in my ears, I would guess. And she was just like, she took me to task in front of everybody. And I was humiliated. And when that's happened in the past, there's always been a good reason for it. So I'm assuming that I don't even remember what it was about, but I'm sure there was a good reason for it. And I went home and I think I, you know, started drinking some alcohol or something to try and figure it out. And then I was crying and feeling sorry for myself. And somewhere in the middle of all that, I realized that she had actually done a very, she'd actually done something really friendly. She had offered me this gift. Because what she could have done, and what I know has happened many times that I just don't know about, is she could have just written me off and said, you know, this is just another white person who doesn't have a clue. I don't even, I'm not even going to waste my time. And instead, she allowed herself to expend her energy to get angry at me in a public forum and to call me to task, which indicated she had some, or the way I took it was that she had some belief that I, I could hear her. And so I decided, okay, I'm going to hear her. And we actually became friends after that because, it, you know, I had this, I don't know if God was operating in that moment to like allow me to have enough wisdom to see that this was a real gift. So that's the first answer. So, so one of the gifts that I feel like I get is that is when people are willing to speak truth to me about anything, about your experience, about how I'm showing up. And that's just a huge gift. It's a gift across race. I mean, it's, it's a gift from white friends too, when people are willing to sort of be completely honest about what's going on for them and and how I'm showing up and what they need from me in terms of how to show up differently. And I think that, you know, I think about Kenneth and the, the gift that he offered was he just had unshakable faith in my ability in the face of a lot of evidence. I don't know why he had such unshakable faith, <laughs> but I didn't have a lot of people who had faith in me in my life. And so I think one of the reasons he was such an important mentor to me was because he, he, believed in my, he believed I could show up in the way that he needed me to show up, which made it possible for me to show up. Now. And I think about, about you or other people that I've worked with. I mean, I think the gift is just the gifts that I get are when people are for, for whatever reasons, it's your, it's your, your bravery or your commitment or your determination or your fierce ferocity about wanting things to be different, that you're able to speak honestly about what you want and need and what's going on for you. So I think those are the gifts that 
that I get. And I try, I try to respond in kind. And I would say, even though I've been, so I'm 68 years old, I've been doing this work a really long time. I'm still surprised by the, as much as I know it in my bones, I'm still surprised by how different my lived experience is from my friends and colleagues of color. And I'm still surprised by how much they are, you you are, they are willing to show up or allow me to show up, you know, given that. So, yeah, I feel like it's a, it's also the last thing I'll say is I think the other gift is that it's, it's a, it's a constant invitation to be present. You know, I think if we're going to be, if we're really going to live into our anti-racist commitment, those of us who are white, we have to be present in every, it's like, it's, and people complain about that, but I think it's a gift. It's like really be present to what's happening is a real, is a huge gift. What you, this, the story you told and just what you described about relationship makes me think about collective care and how, I don't know if the woman in that meeting cared about you, but, but I kind of thought, well, she cared enough mm-hmm. to say something mm-hmm. and, and to offer feedback that would change you, right? Like in a profound way. And then y'all's relationship and, I do wonder what the world would be like. I think about this all the time. If we extended care in that way, like she wasn't agreeing with you. She was calling you into being better. Like she was like, here's what's going on. Show up as I know, you know, show up as who you can be. Right. Right. Makes me think of the assumption, love ourselves into who we want to be. It's like that, like she believed that. Um, And, and I think other folks have believed that for you and for me. And just, I think when we do that, that's, that's a practice of collective care, which I think is what we need to do. It's not easy though. No, it's not. And it's quite possible she doesn't care about me at all. I know. I'm not, so I'm not projecting that onto her. I am saying I experienced it as care though, because yeah. I don't know what her intention was. She might've just been so frustrated. It was like, I can't even hold this in anymore. And, you know, in my little uh, buzz of alcohol state with my crying and my emotional, I was able to sort of have this opening to like, why you don't defend against this? You know, this is, this is really a gift to you. And so in my teaching now, one of the things I say to people is that, you know, we always get to draw the line when it comes to our safety. And it's almost 100% true or 98% that what people say to you and even how they say it to you is not going to kill you. It's not going to kill me. You know, so it's like when people give voice to what their experience is, it's not going to kill you. So just listen and see what it has to offer. Mm-hmm. And if it feels unsafe, then of course, you, know, yeah. you, get, to, you get to act on them. Well, to me, I said care because, and I don't know if she cared either, but because of can- cancel culture, mm-hmm. like how maybe that always existed. I just hear more about it now and I see it more. And maybe that's on social media. I don't know, but how people just write each other off. And that is what dominant culture wants us to do. So yeah. we're not in relationships then, right? And we can't work through these things and from our different positions and, and locations. And it just feels like that's an antidote collective care to this cancel culture. And, and I'm also not saying we need to stay in everything. I just, y'all became friends. So yeah, something came from that, that is about care and relationship was centered. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think that goes back to this tension I was mentioning before, which is that how do we, you know, and, and people talk about calling in rather than calling out, but how do we how do we be honest with each other without throwing, as Cynthia Brown would say, without throwing anybody away, right? And of course, we, that doesn't mean we don't set boundaries with people. And I do feel like 
it's the other, it's not a question I'm sitting with, but what I'm witnessing is that one of the, one of the reasons I believe that the right is, is as successful as it is, is because it's pretty easy to organize people into hatred. It's like, come join us. And, and we're, what we have in common is all these people that we hate and all these people that we're going to blame. And that's, it, it's a very satisfying, it's very satisfying to belong because, and I can remember doing this myself, that I, I knew I belonged to a group of people because we spent a lot of time making judgments about other people, right? And that our movement still has so much work to do because we're, we can be so judgmental. And, and, and for people to, I think it's very challenging sometimes for people to feel like they're allowed to belong because we're sitting in judgment about how they show up and do they have the right politics? Are they saying the right things? Are they using the right pronouns? Are they using the right acronyms? Are they... Do they have the right analysis? And it's, and we just we have so much work to do around how to welcome people in all of their brokenness and conditioned ignorance and you know and brilliance and all that, you know, not just the Yeah. I asked a question about despair earlier and, and we're talking about that like conditioning and how we experience the culture in such different ways in relationship and and I keep thinking about resilience, like how long you've you've been doing this work, <laughs> even though you, you may have a choice about it, maybe. I'm not sure about that, actually. I know some white people have a choice about this because they don't have to talk about racism because they can continue to benefit from, from it. Even, But I know you, and so I feel like this is part of your dharma, your work in the world. And I am, I'm wondering about like what makes you continue to show up and do this? Like, I think about resilience, you've had to build the muscle to like keep continue to show up. Like what calls you into that, given that the white supremacy is like, don't do that anti-racism work, right? Just benefit from the system and be silent. Like what makes you show up over and over and over? Um, this is gonna sound very trite, and my answer is love. And that I think that over time, this is another familiar story. Like when I first started doing this work, and Kenneth told me my job was to to lead affinity groups with white people. I said, okay, I had no desire to do that. And I didn't know what I was supposed to do. And I was really clear that I didn't want to do it because I couldn't prove I was one of the good white people if I was only with other white people. The way it proved to people of color I was a good white person was to be with them. So I started with that sort of frame of mind. And then in the middle, I had my very long self-righteous period, which is like, I understand why we're meeting as white people. We have different work to do. And I have my shit together because I'm a trainer. I've been doing this for a while now. And you need to prove to me that you've, you know, that you've got your shit together. So it was a really, uh, I joke that I, I joke and I mean that I extend apologies to anybody who was in my trainings when I was in that period. Mm-hmm. And then finally, I kind of started to see my own racism in all the subtle ways that it was showing up and understand that I wasn't really all that different from other white people and that, and started to see how toxic white supremacy and racism was to me, how it was keeping me from being in relationship to myself, in in relationship with other white people, in relationship with people of color, in relationship with God. It's just, that's its purpose. It's just to keep us disembodied and disconnected. Reverend Angel Keanu Williams talks about white supremacy as disembodiment. And I started to really embody that reality of what white supremacy was doing. And I think it really shifted the way I started doing my teaching and the way I think about this work. And so it, it doesn't wear me out now 
but I don't feel a lot of despair as bad as things are because I feel like, for one thing, my ambition is really small now. I used to have, I used to have a lot of ambition, not in terms of a career, but in terms of being able to change the world. And I, I don't have that kind of ambition anymore. My ambition is really to love myself and others into being who we can be if we weren't constantly under attack by white supremacy, capitalism, and all the other violence that is out there so that a few people can profit. And it feels like, it feels like a, an urgent project to me. And I see my role as being pretty small, which allows me to be just persistent and consistent with it. It's like, I don't, and I'm so grateful for people who are, but I'm not a, a national organizer. I'm not, I don't have a big stage. I don't have a, I'm not trying to, to, I'm not a leader in that way. So I've made peace with the kind of leader that I am. And it's allowed me to be, I think, to have some persistence because I, I just feel like people were so, so many of us are so full of hurt and um, trauma and, and we're so also so beautiful and so genius. And so I'm just trying to do my part in supporting people to be who they want to be. And it feels like that's what I can do. I, I feel like I've identified what I can do, what I'm good at. And um, I don't, I don't try to push myself to, to do things that I'm, I'm not any good at anymore. Mm-hmm. I used to out of a sense of duty that I should be doing things that I don't have any business doing. So that's helped me to stay, stay in. Well, and the culture conditioned you that way, right? To yeah. Yeah. do things that in so many ways that you shouldn't have been doing, right? Yeah. That's yeah. so infused in a white supremacist culture yeah. and capitalism as well. What is bringing you joy at this time? So I just have to say, this is really challenging because I want to just turn all the questions back <laughs> and ask you to answer them. But I, <laughs> are we allowed to do that? You can ask me a question. I interviewed Reverend Angel um, like two weeks ago for some summit and off the mat into the world summit. And she said the same thing. It's so funny. There's something you want to ask me. I will answer it. And then we'll I was wondering what makes, you, m- m- makes it possible for you to hang in. You've been in this work a long time too. Hmm. So funny. I ask these questions and then I'm like, oh, that's a really hard question to answer. Right now, what I think keeps me in, and this changed, this evolved over time is my connection with my ancestors. When I was writing Skill in Action, it became clear to me that that was my, like, I'm writing the story, but it's not my story. I mean, it is, but it's my ancestor's story. And then after my grandmother transitioned, and she started to show up in all of these ways. I was like, oh, I'm doing this work for her and for my ancestors and to heal, right, my line and, and hopefully to contribute to healing in the world and to heal some small part of this planet so that it's different for people who are here after I leave my body. And my great-grandmother, Angie, I've just started to develop a relationship with her. I knew her when I was a child, but I... I used to describe her as my great-grandmother. She was born into slavery. I don't know much about her because she had dementia. By the time she was able, like, I kind of knew her. And so we couldn't really talk that much. And someone told me, um, she said to me, she's the only ancestor that you describe by her condition, which is to be enslaved. And it's, it like blew my mind 
because I talked about my grandmother and my father and this lady was like, but you're describing her as her condition. And, and part of your work is to move beyond conditions. I mean, we've been talking about conditioning. And so I'm, I'm developing a relationship with her and, and that feels my relationship with her feels so connected to what is allowing me to stay in because like you, I believe, I do believe we're bigger than our conditioning. Right. But, and, and we can aspire to be, to remember that that's, that's it. And so that's why I stay in and I believe in us. Like I believe in us. I just, I just do. There's so much like shit happening in the world, but I believe in us, like in my heart so deeply and in my bones. And that helps me as well. Like there's something different available to us. Yeah. So thank you for asking the question. (laughs) Funny. I was asking you about joy. I want to know what is bringing you joy at this time. That's a great question. This has been a really tough two years for me on a personal level, not related to my work. And so I think the things that are bringing me joy are how going through this transition and the suffering that has come along with it has really helped me to befriend myself and belong to myself in a way that I never have my life. And that, that brings me a lot of joy, sort of to be in this relationship with myself in a different kind of way than I ever have been. And the other thing, and, and probably very related to this, is just realizing how many, and I do not take this for granted, I am just blown away by how many people I love and how many people love me. And I don't say that in some kind of, like, I'm not trying to be boastful about it. It's that I'm surrounded by beloveds. And this last two years has really shown me that in a way I did not know before. And I don't think, and, like, and this is one of the reasons why I think people should want to join us in, in the movement, because I think the movement is beloved community and it can be a place of, of, really, of, of real, really feeling belonging. It can also be a place that's, that's challenging for people. And I would say just at this point in my life and my development, I'm finding it, I'm finding a lot of joy in love community. And then I would also say that I'm developing and I have a I have a memory, another story where many, many years ago I was in a gathering with a wonderful woman named Zulaika Santiago. And she used the word love out loud. Like we need to we need to act out of love. And I was like, whoa, she dares to say love out loud. At that time it was like nobody used the word love out loud. Mm-hmm. And I think I've told her this many times. It sort of changed my life, and I started to get more bold about using the word love. And that's how I feel now about the word God. That I feel like I'm developing a relationship with, I don't know what you want to call it, God, the divine spirit, essence, one, one oneness. I don't know. I, I do feel like underneath our conditioning, there is just so much love. And it brings me joy to be, when I'm able to like be in the energetic field of love that's available to me and to all of us. And again, I don't say this to deny in any way that people are living really hard lives. I'm not saying this, I'm not saying we are all one to erase in any way how incredibly different we are. And I do believe that you sort of said it, that the universe wants, wants us to, wants us to not only survive, but to thrive and just try, it brings me joy to be in touch with that because I, I grew up in a household where I was trained to just notice what was wrong. I was, I'm very good at noticing what's not working. I, I 
have tendencies towards bitterness and cynicism. And so to sort of be cultivating this part of myself is bringing me, and this, this way of being in the world is bringing me a lot of joy. And then finally, just seeing everybody's incredible bravery these days. People are just showing up in such amazing, creative, brave, bold, beautiful ways. Gives me a lot of hope and joy. Knowing you brings me a lot of joy. I know. I love you so much. Yeah. Love you too. Yeah. What you said about love, I was reflecting on what you said about righteousness earlier in that time period where you were in that space of, I know I'm a good white person. I know the answers you don't know. You're a bad white person or however you felt about the white people who didn't know, who hadn't arrived yet. Yep. But it feels like remembering love and who we truly are and can be is like an antidote to that righteousness. And it also like love takes time and is about relationship. And so many, I've noticed so many white people show up because they want to fix what's going on, but like want a two hour workshop to fix the thing that's been going on for a long time. And, and that doesn't center like the time it takes. And you mentioned this earlier, like patience, even though it's not a time for patience, it's like, it's going to take time to, to dismantle this or to remember, to undo this and to live into something different. I do think that's a big reason. Another big reason I've been able to keep going is because I did used to come at this from a place where I felt like I could fix it or I could save people or I could set people straight or I could, you know, in some kind of controlling way. And finally, because I wasn't doing any of those things, I gave up on that. And that has made it possible for me to come at this in a way that I think is a lot more sustainable and effective too, or whatever effective is, but it's a lot more compassionate or more something. Well, it's also more honest. Like you can't (laughs) fix or save other people who are not where you are with this, right? And it's not your work either. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That feels like medicine. Is there anything else you want to share today with folks who are listening? Is there anything else I want to share? Anything else for us to know? Yeah. I I think I I joke a lot that I know five things for sure in any given day that it's five different things. Yeah. I I guess what I would say is that it's one of our racial equity principles, but I, I would say that this is a time of such fear. And, you know, the, the playbook that the Trump administration is using is a Nazi playbook. It's a fascist playbook. They're play, you know, they're, you could you could track it. You know, they're doing all the things. And in these in these times of great of leadership using fear in order to manipulate and drive and guide people, it becomes more important than ever for us to choose love. And I don't again don't mean that. You know, Dr. King distinguishes between anemic love or Pollyannish love. I'm not talking. I'm talking about fierce love, and fierce love is hard because it means you know, loving someone who's addicted or loving someone who's acting in harmful ways or loving someone who's racist. That's a hard thing to do. So um, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm just saying that I believe the way forward for us is to become really familiar with when fear is arising to notice it to say hello fear and to say we're going to go a different way you know mm-hmm. in those cases where fear is is needed to to get us into safety then we're going to follow it but in in the ways i'm talking about where it's just being used to manip- manipulate us and to disconnect us from each other then our commitment to as cynthia would say not throw each other away 
not throw any of us away. Right. It was one of the last things she said, you know, um, don't throw anybody away. Mm-hmm. I said, okay, yes, ma'am. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I will follow those instructions. Yeah. Well, thank you for being who you are in the world and in my life. And thank you for being in my life and for being in this work and this movement and practice of love, um, you know, through creating and doing anti-racism work and centering relationship. And I, I appreciate you taking time to be here with me today. I'm honored that you asked and thanks back at you for teaching me all that you've taught me and for hanging with me when things got, we've been through some rough periods. So mm-hmm. I appreciate our ability to move through those and come out the other side. Yeah, me too. Thank you. Yep. Love you. I love you. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. You can support Finding Refuge by rating it on iTunes and by sharing it with friends and beloveds. You can support my work, the work of skill in action, creating justice in the world, by becoming a patron on Patreon. Visit my page there. It is skill in action. I hope you take care of yourself and that we take care of one another. Be well, friends. Thank you.